Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips Herb, Tax Girl. I'm a tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers and tax practitioners like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. If you're a regular listener on the show, or if you're a regular reader of my column, you know that I'm not shy about talking about student debt. My parents were not able to pay for my college or graduate school, and as a first-generation college graduate, I didn't understand the financial aid process, so I borrowed. I also worked constantly, including three jobs at one time while in law school, and I still graduated from law school with a lot of debt. Years later, I can confirm that education has not become more affordable. My daughter is currently sifting through applications and acceptances with many schools in the Northeast costing over seventy dollars and $80,000 per year. Fortunately for my children, I've been through this process so that I can help with some do's and don'ts when it comes to loans and repayments. But for many graduates, there's no one to ask. That's why I've asked Bobby Matson to the show. Bobby is the CEO of Pay It Off. Pay It Off provides technology solutions that helps institutions, employers, and fintechs produce better financial outcomes for student loan borrowers. Bobby himself has managed six-figure student debt, something I can relate to, and founded Pay It Off with the goals of streamlining a complicated system and saving borrowers money. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So let's talk student debt. I mentioned that I had student debt and, uh, and also that you had student debt. So I assume that that was the um, influence, your own debt for starting the company. Can you kind of tell, tell us like how that started and what your mission is now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's really core to you know, our DNA at Pay It Off. Uh, my wife and I uh, had six-figure student loans that was really keeping us from starting a family or buying a home or, or really reaching those life goals that we had. I think it was about five or six years ago, we just realized it was really stopping us from getting to that next level in our lives. And my background is mainly in engineering type roles at Groupon, Stitch Fix, Fandango. And so I kind of viewed this in a similar vein of, hey, this is a really complex problem for us that I feel technology is well suited to handle. You know, what I noticed is that there was not a lot of tooling out there to help borrowers with the like, you know, what should I do with my student loans question? Mm-hmm. What's the best next step for me? So that motivated me to codify all the regs in the space. Really, it was a night project. I didn't really think it'd be a, a company until I realized it's when we ran our numbers through this engine, you know, we saved tens of thousands of dollars. And fast forward to today, we have a three-year-old and a house. And, you know, so we're like the walking testimonial that <laughs> clarity can can really help <laughs> borrowers. And I think that's you're dealing with a system that is by far the most complex financial product out there, especially on the loans, on the lending side of things. And I think what we focused on from the early days was bringing clarity and transparency to that, starting with the tools that developers use to, uh, to help with this problem. I love that you mentioned that it's complicated because this is something that I talk about a lot, which is that when I first borrowed money, I'm a numbers person and I was a smart person. <laughs> But when I first borrowed money, I genuinely didn't understand how it worked. And not in the simplistic, did I have to pay it back? Because that I totally got. I didn't understand some of the just really what I thought were 
now I understand. So people don't need to write in and tell me. But at the time, I didn't understand, for example, that the interest would not only accumulate, but compound while I was still in school. Again, I was first generation college grad. I thought when I was done with school, I'd start paying it off. I didn't. And I realized now it seems foolish. But, you know, I started school at a young age. I was 16 when I went to school. Nobody told me how this works. I'm actually talking to my kids now and explaining to them how it works. You know, they understand how a credit card works, but student loans are much more complicated than just a credit card. Because not only do you have these repayment rules, but there's different levels, there's different options. Loans are constantly being sold and resold. Sometimes you don't even know who owns your loan. And it's really strange. And, and, and it, what's also amazing to me is that when my daughter was getting debit card. I had to give all my information for her. She can now get a credit card, but she still needs me. But for student debt, they are willing to give her a lot of money, (laughs) even though she's not working. Whereas with a car payment, a house payment, or a credit card, they would actually require you to demonstrate some kind of, you know, credit worthiness. And, you know, I think that's why people end up in these situations, right? Like you and I were discussing. Yeah, I think in general, when you're going to school, I mean, the foundations of student loans from the early days in the 50s, when they were first writing the regulations is, is, is a very, very much a beautiful vision, you know, increasing access to education. It's all about access. Mm-hmm. But where we are today is you have, you know, so many borrowers taking on these um, balances that balloon over time. And what you cited as uh, one of the most un- misunderstood concepts uh, in student loans, which is interest capitalization, where the, depending on your loan type, there will be, and certain events that happen in your repayment process, your interest can basically be attached to your principal, and then you start generating interest on interest. So that's when you start seeing some pretty gnarly stuff. It's the kind of stuff we guard against to pay it off, and the system's designed to prevent. That's all based on what's in the regulations. So there's so much that's in there based on when you took out the loan, what loan type you have, whether it's federally backed or privately backed. There's different loan programs for those. And like you said, if you're in the private market, a lot of times your loans can move around quite a bit mm-hmm. and be resecuritized. So, you know, I think I've, my wife and I have dealt with personally probably six servicers through our repayment period between right. all the private and federal loans. <laughs> so I think that's the, that's the hardest part is, gaining the clarity. And it's not like it's getting less confusing or or less difficult. So we just need more participation from players in this space. Anyone, anyone from the chimes of the world to the John Hancocks, like every financial services company really needs to focus on this problem. And honestly, it's it's something that personally the you know have been working on this company for four, four and a half years. And I still look back at those early moments to really motivate what everyone is feeling and what everyone needs in, in this population, the student loan borrower population, which is just, just clarity so that they can find some relief and make better decisions. So that's, that's really what we're focused on. Right. I think actually explaining to people not only what it is that they're doing, because again, we all know we're borrowing when we're borrowing. But as you mentioned, there are different levels, there are different kinds of borrowers, there are different kinds of you know secured versus unsecured loans. There's all kinds of ways you can pay for your education, not always through a, quote, student loan. I mean, there are other ways, obviously, that you can pay. You can borrow against a house or credit card. There's all kinds of ways. But just making sure that people understand and have access to the information, I think, is huge. And 
that's actually the same in, in the tax space, right? Like, I think that when we talk about taxes and how complicated they can be, there are ways to make uh, or to break it down so that it's understandable to the people who have to pay them. And that's something we strive to do all the time, especially in the tax profession. Like, not everyone has time to sit down and read the Internal Revenue Code. <laughs> so it's they just want to know, what do I need to know? And I think that that kind of information isn't always available either in the tax space or, or the student loan space. And where those two collide, there's a few places they collide, but one, of course, is the, the interest deduction that you can get on your taxes for student loans. And can you talk to us a little bit about that and you know why students may or may not qualify for it? Yeah. So just to go back to how complex the system is, this is a pure example where you know, usually borrowers uh, and my wife and I were able to, to claim this deduction for a period of time as well. If you pay student loan interest of, on your student loans throughout the year, you get a deduction of up to $2,500. Depends on your income and your filing status. But, um, you know, a lot of borrowers do get this deduction. But the past year, no interest uh, accrued on federally guaranteed loans through a COVID-19 forbearance period, which ends in May. But um, if you're expecting that deduction, it's, it's very unlikely that you're going to get it because you know the federally guaranteed loans, most of student loans out there. So even if you made payments because no interest accrued on your account, you can't count it unless you already had outstanding interest. So prepaid interest that you paid would, would count, but it's, it's going to be a small part of the population that'll actually be able to get that deduction. So that's another example of like, how the regs can sometimes conflict and how sometimes, you know, it just gets so complex. It's not, borrowers are unsure what to expect. And it's worth noting, since you mentioned your wife and you both paying off your loans, the, the crazy thing to me and regular listeners of the show know this is something I've complained about before, is that that $2,500 is per return and not per person, which I, I actually think is a, is a failing of, of the tax code <laughs> in that regard. Because especially if you have a married couple, both of you, my husband and I are both paying off, off debt, to have that be a per person rather than a per return deduction would be really beneficial. Yeah, definitely. There are some regulations that have been really positive in the tax code through the COVID period. There's a lot of federal programs. So one thing I do want to highlight that our, our technology factors in is that every borrower has an option, no matter your income level. If you're maybe not able to make your payments or you're struggling to, or your payments are as high as rent. There's lots of federal programs and we're still the only uh, API that's enabling borrowers to digitally enroll in those. So we power a lot of different apps out there that help borrowers with those programs. The average borrower saves like 240 a month roughly in their next payment. So it's a really meaningful change. So that's something that somebody who maybe was recently unemployed because of COVID would be able to take advantage of. But then borrowers who you know, maybe are married and, and both have student loans or federal loans that maybe have a more positive cash flow, they may be able to benefit from accelerating paydown and maybe refinancing. So these are all the types of pieces of guidance that are, can be extremely meaningful and change as the borrower's life changes. You know, as you get married, you may want to change plans. Uh, so there's just so many touch points throughout your journey with student loans that getting clarity helps, helps with. Right. And you mentioned refinancing your loans. I can say as someone who has refinanced my loans and refinanced a mortgage, when it was time for us to do a refi on our mortgage, our mortgage broker sat down, talked to us about what it was that we were doing, 
what we would be paying. Like we had a long conversation. A man came to our house during COVID. We actually refinanced during COVID. A man came to our house <laughs> and brought us the paperwork because it had to be signed in on ink. It couldn't be um, just digitally signed. And also, again, told us everything we were doing. I can tell you, I do not recall having any conversations like that when I refinanced my student debt. I think it was a phone call and I said, I'm not sure that I can pay this right now. And they said, okay, and some paperwork arrived. And I do think having more discussions about that, whether it's from the borrower, whether it's something out there in terms of just education for all students, because I know that students are required to go through those know those sessions in school where they talk to you about borrowing, but they're not really meaningful. It's not the same as having somebody sit across the desk from you or having someone deliver something to your laptop where you can look at it and see, okay, this is what I'm paying. This is what I would be paying. This is the difference. Here's how much longer I might have to have this debt. If I do this, here's how much more quickly I could pay it off if I did something different. I do think that these are conversations that we're really just still not having, despite you know all the headlines that we see about how this is a crisis. Honestly, I think that is stems from a really important core problem in the industry, which you know we've we've spent so much time working on. So you know we're a B two B company. We work with fintechs, as you mentioned, uh, financial institutions, and what we really focus on is getting step one right, which is the data source. So we we have a product that allows any borrower to link their servicer account and get really uh, and the partner that they're linking with to get really rich data about the attributes you just mentioned, how long they have to repay, what their repayment plan is. And there just weren't tools like that before that actually gave you things like repayment plan type, because borrowers could be on one of 14 federal repayment plans. Mm-hmm. So I think getting that right is, is also so contextual. So that's why we also offer automated guidance because just having that data, it's hard to reason with what they should do next um, and that best next step. And that's something we automate as well. But could be like, for instance, there's income-driven plans, choosing which one to be on. Software happens to be really good at crunching numbers and like people still try to do this with spreadsheets. And I think, you know, having done this with spreadsheets, it's not how the average person, you know, it's super error prone. It's not how the average person should be doing that. You know, computers are incredibly good at taking constraints and, you know, a problem, which is how do I best repay this and finding an A or B to choose from, you know, that's in the early days of pay it off. I was always, I mean, before the company had a name, it's just my wife and I, I was like so frustrated. It was so easy to buy insurance on lemonade, but like so hard to figure out what to do with student loans. And it comes back to just the pipes weren't there. Mm -hmm. So we've really had to focus on pipes because frankly, there's just not no, no pipes, even in uh, any type of debt repayment, I, I would say student loans being the worst, there's really not good tooling right now. And we're really focused on bringing better data streams, more reliable connections in a way that aligns with the whole ecosystem. Servicers at the end of the day, and we work with a lot of servicers, mm-hmm. they want more borrowers in repayment at the end of the day. You know, that's how they, their fees are structured and that they just don't want to drive additional costs. You know, they're not trying to be bad guys. You know, the system is really complex. And there's really, even in that exit interview you mentioned at the end of school, you know, there's not enough information at that time to make a confident decision. You know, most borrowers should be on an income driven plan right when they leave their undergrad degree. I should have been. I actually remember I started my first company at Michigan. (laughs) Yeah. 
the first payment you see as a borrower is the standard 10-year default. And it's the highest monthly payment you can get on a federal repayment plan. (laughs) So of course, it's a high risk moment for a borrower to be like, oh, I can't pay that. I can't pay them at all. And then they end up delinquent or in in forbearance, which is where I ended up because I was starting a company. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I I remember calling into my servicer at the time and asking, well, what what can I do here? And they said, oh, you could just pause payments for a year. I was like, oh, yeah, let's do that. Mm -hmm. And it sounded great. But then I did the math later. It was on forbearance, ended up for years. And I think it was a $20,000 phone call almost. Wow. So it's, it's, these things are happening a lot. And again, it's not like servicers are the ones at fall for all this. It's the system that's so complex that isn't incentivizing folks to, to really um, get on the right, re, you know, right situation based on their context. So that's why software can really help solve this problem. So we've really just kind of focused 100% of our energy there. And I think numbers, when you present any kind of data to borrowers, if you present it in easy to understand ways, it does make them look at things differently. And, and while I bring up you know, numbers is credit card bills now. You know, if you get your credit card bill in the corner, it will tell you if you only pay the minimum amount due, this is how long it will take you to pay it off, right? So at least my credit card bill will tell me in the corner, if I don't pay, you know, if, if this is a month that I'm not paying the whole thing off, if I only pay the minimum number, you know, I'll have to pay this for 10 years or whatever, whatever number it is. And you don't see that same kind of information on student loan bills. In fact, with student loan bills, they just keep coming. You just keep writing a check. <laughs> Sometimes you feel like you're yep. not moving the needle at all. And I think that's what's frustrating for a lot of folks. Yeah, agreed. And honestly, you'll feel empowered if you do have the agency to make a decision. You know what I mean? Right. Like if, I, if I have an AB to choose from that's tailored to me, I'm, I'm going to feel empowered to make a call. And then I'll perform an action of some kind. I'm very motivated to because even if it means, hey, the best thing for me is to prepay $129 a month on, my, on these particular loans, and then I can do it in a couple of clicks, like, I'm going to do that. And that's so meaningful to someone's financial outcome, like just dramatically meaningful. And it's the stuff I wish was there when we were trying to figure this stuff out in my early 20s. And it's sort of the... The problem I'm seeing, and at the graduate level, think about a doctor, dentist, you said you have a law degree, mm-hmm. you know, lawyers, very similar thing. In Early in the company's existence, we actually built a tool for financial advisors, still in existence, uh, still used by a bunch of RIAs, and it would help them build plans. And they were the most complex cases, married doctors, some with federal loans, some that qualified for public service loan forgiveness. So we really started from the most complex cases and have now figured out how to automate it to the borrower who has 50K in loans, but makes 20K a year. And that's just as big a problem as someone who has 100K in income and 200K in student loans. So you know, there's, it's just a similar problem, just a different scale. Right. And that's actually one of the things I think that folks don't understand about higher income taxpayers and, and, and borrowers. Yeah. And I know that there's not a lot of sympathy sometimes when people talk about this, but it's to your point exactly. Like if you're only making, you know, if you're only making 30,000 and you owe 50, that can feel overwhelming. It's the same if you're making 100,000 and you owe 300,000. And I think that, exactly. um, you know, I've, I've spoken with a, a lot of my clients, not just myself as an attorney, but I represent a lot of doctors and other professionals and they get themselves into other kinds of trouble 
because they're trying to work around this debt and taxes are a great example. I can't tell you how many professionals I know that don't pay their tax bills because they're busy paying the people who are screaming the loudest and tax sometimes feels like something you can kick down the road. So, you know, maybe if, especially if you're a 1099, I I had a, um, a, an anesthesiologist who was a client who went from hospital to hospital and had a lot of money that he earned, but he was paying off other things and figured that someday he'd have a year where he'd just pay the taxes, right? But for now, he had to pay the things that were the loudest. And student loans, at least in my experience, in some of my clients, traditionally, you know, those borrowers are actually very, very quick to, you know, to make the phone call and to send the letters and to say, you know, don't forget that you have to pay this back. And so it becomes something that you feel like, you know, maybe you put in front of another kind of debt, especially now that you can't eliminate it in bankruptcy the way you could many years ago. You know, I I do think it it's harder to write off, right? So it becomes more of a priority for a lot of folks. Yeah. And I think I think it's it's interesting because it's also an emotional type of debt. It's very different. You know, even if it's the logical thing, we've seen this, you know, in in bar behavior over time, is even if it's the logical thing to pay your credit card first, sometimes mm-hmm. people feel like, oh, I just need to get rid of this student debt. You know, that's like kind of the impulse because there's it's not tied to anything but your brain. So there is this like weird sort of emotional component to it that I completely understand. But at the same time, I think what people are really saying when they say that is I just want to have control over it. Uh, yeah. I, I want to have a path. Sure. And I think that path may be, hey, I'm in a federal program where I'm opting for forgiveness in 20 years and I'm saving 50 grand by just focusing on that program. Or it's, I am paying it down as soon as possible. It's, it's, it, the hard thing is that it's not normal debt. It's not a private loan. It's not fixed payment. It's, it's a largely federal, you know, around 90% are, are federal loans. So you're dealing with a population of, of loans here that are really tied to regulations. And that's what makes it really hard to get control of it. Yeah, I think it's also stigmatized in a way that other debt isn't. I think especially in the last couple of years when there's been this discussion about forgiveness of debt, it has amped up some of the rhetoric about big debt being irresponsible. And if you have debt, I think it's also generational in that I think that, you know, the cost of an education is just so much more than it used to be. When folks were going to college in the 50s, they were not paying proportionate to their income, the kind of dollars that we're seeing now. Again, I mentioned at the top of the program, my daughter is applying to college and some of the schools, I'm in Pennsylvania area, some of the schools here start at 70 when you start looking at, oh yeah, we just got a financial aid package the other day from a school that's 85,000. It's an excellent school, but that's $85,000 a year. And those kind of numbers don't correlate to income as we know necessarily. And so I think that there is this stigma when it comes to borrowing, right? Like, why didn't you do something different? Which I think is um is interesting because if if you tell me that you just bought a BMW and it cost you seventy thousand dollars, I don't automatically at least say out loud <laughs> that I'm going to be judgy about this, right? Like, I don't say, well, what do you do for a living? Are you going to be able to pay that back? But yet, if somebody does the same thing with education. That's exactly where people's conversations go. Oh, you're going to, you know, insert name of college here. How are you going to pay that back? What is your major? Do you think you're going to get a job? And I do think that there's this conversation that we're having around student debt in a way that we don't talk about other debt. We don't ask you how much your sofa costs and why your Macy's bill is so high. 
but we do talk about student debt in this kind of very how dare you kind of way. I'm glad you brought that up because the forgiveness conversation is really, you know, at a fever pitch. And Mm -hmm. the truth is, if you forgave a large portion of student loans right now, you don't really solve the problem because it's really the rising cost of tuition that's driving the 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 lending. So if you have controlled cost of education and you forgave student debt, then you actually might make a meaningful impact on that. Now, whether that'll happen is, you know, up in the air for the, the way that we've seen in interacting with various players in the industry, forgiveness is something that has become really a soundbite. Biden does have a 10K forgiveness plan that he, that he wanted to introduce and was sort of a campaign promise, mm-hmm. but we really haven't seen a lot of movement. What we have seen is uh, the Department of Education doing amazing uh, targeted relief programs for things right. like public service loan forgiveness and a few bar defense just making it easier to get some of those forgiveness opportunities. And, and there are hundreds of existing forgiveness programs that no one knows about. In fairness, though, the Department of Education has not done a terrific job over the past few years of implementing and or educating people about those, to be oh, fair. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know. I think that the data doesn't lie there in terms of, you know, how many people were accepted for uh, mm-hmm. public service loan forgiveness program. And, right. you know, they have this waiver that they introduced to increase access to that program. So I think that, again, just points back to the complexity of the system. You know, they're operating in the system. Administrations change. Priorities change. And I think borrowers, a lot of times, are left to figure it out on their own. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where having better tools is a big, big part of the story. Like we return a PSLF object uh, when someone sinks their Fed loan account that tells them exactly how close they are to being eligible for that and how many payments might will actually count towards that and why they're not counting. You know, like that kind of fidelity of information is very, very useful. I have a friend who, you know, I've been just working with her and navigating PSLF for years, who's a doctor in a residency. And it's just to see it firsthand is, uh, you know, I totally uh, relate to what you're saying. It has been not well communicated and really mm-hmm. difficult uh, for the borrowers to manage. And if they had access to that information, they could also make better overall economic decisions. And again, just kind of tying it back to tax. One of the things I'm yep. often asked is how do I file, right? Like, do I file jointly if I'm married? Do I file married filing separately? How do I file? And for a lot of taxpayers, well, not for a lot, for most taxpayers, it is more tax advantageous to file married filing jointly. But in some of these programs that you mentioned, there might be a non-tax reason, notably uh, income, income-based repayment, and some of these programs to file separately. But taxpayers don't have access to that kind of information at their fingertips, you know, trying to figure it all out takes a lot of time and energy. So it actually is really, I think, kind of thrilling to think that more and more information would be made available to those people who are looking for it. I don't know someone's financial picture. I, uh, people ask me a lot of questions all the time. Is it better to file this way or that way? You know, I don't know. But you know, if you could plug your information in somewhere and have someone explain to you, this is, this is what you need. This is how it works. I think that would you know, help a lot of people sleep a little better at night. Yeah. I mean, our goal is to that you will be able to plug that information in anywhere. Any financial app you use should mm-hmm. know that. And we want to be powering that. I think that what you mentioned, that case is one I, you know, we've seen a lot where couples filed, you know, married filing jointly, both partners have federal loans. And if they file separately, they can dramatically decrease their costs and their monthly payment on their student loans 
assuming they're in an income driven plan. Uh, right. So depending on the plan they're in, again, like all those ifs, like <laughs> are very difficult. If they're on revised pay as you earn, they're not going to have that benefit. So usually jointly makes sense. So I, it's so contextual is the hard part about it. But again, I think if you get that clarity and you're like, oh, I know the exact dollar amount I'll save per year at, you know, as a couple, if we file separately and you weigh that against the cost of filing separately, then you can make a decision. So I think those are the things that borrowers just need to be able to see without doing anything more than you know putting in a few inputs. So outside of your company's software or your, your company's programs, what do you like like putting that aside for a second? If you were just said, if I'm a borrower and I'm listening into this, or I'm a parent of a borrower listening to this, what kind of information should you know at a minimum about student loan? And then kind of plugging into uh, what it is that you guys are doing, where do people look for more information? Like for the next step, for the kind of details that you're talking about. But like, so what should you know at a minimum? And then where can you find out more? Yeah. So the first thing you should know as a borrower, if you're in repayment, is who your servicer is. A lot of servicers exited the federal program, uh, the federal uh, servicing contracts this year. So Navient's one of them. All the 6 million borrowers have been transferred to AidVantage, which is a new servicer uh, that's a spinoff from Maximus, a company that does a lot of federal contracting. And there's a lot of new servicer sort of changes happening. FedLoan also is exiting this year. And uh, there's other servicers taking on that volume. So I would say this year, first thing you can do is just verify your servicer, like who you have as a servicer. You know, we power a lot of apps both in the workplace and uh, more direct-to-consumer financial apps. So you can go to our website and get a look at our partner list to see where you can get that kind of guidance. Some great examples are Chipper and Future Fuel, and they're more student loan focused. Uh, and we work with other folks like Scully. They're amazing in the scholarship automation space. And they built a tool using our, our API called Payoff. So I think there's just a variety of tools that, that you can leverage in that list. And so that's that would sort of be the next step to check those partners out. And I think, you know, if you don't want to sort of switch to a different partner, you can always ask your bank to use us. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> we're trying to work, we're trying to work with any financial institution, any financial app. We have a lot of big partnerships coming up this year. We're excited about household names. So, you know, we're very excited when we can talk about that stuff. But at the end of the day, it's just about providing more access to this tech to more borrowers because we know that impact like that societal impact will be massive mm -hmm. and we've seen it time and time again with every partner we work with um, and we want to expand the tech to other forms of debt uh, as well I mean we, there's there's being able to sync your credit card accounts your auto loan accounts your mortgages and get even a more holistic picture you know is definitely part of our plan I think the real thing we've noticed is that by automating financial decisioning itself, I think creates a lot of opportunity, both for the users of any app and the partner who is leveraging the tech. So that's really our big, big vision at, at Pay It Off to gotcha. really unlock that. Yeah, no, I think, and I again on the on the student side especially, I think the more information that you can make available to folks in an easy to understand way, you know, it it helps uh, prevent some of these tragic stories that you hear about where people find themselves feeling so overwhelmed that they, you know, they don't know what to do next. Um, and I, and I do, I can't imagine I'm lucky in that we we've managed over these years to finally make dents in our student loans, but it was really tough for me to pay off. I it paid off my undergrad and then 
almost getting through my law school debt. It can be really intimidating. And especially when you, when you don't feel like there's an out. One of the nice things about getting older is that you start sorting through some of this and you can reprioritize and you figure stuff out. But I can imagine the amount of debt that younger borrowers are carrying earlier on is, is just astounding to me. And, and I feel for that, that whole generation. Yeah. And I'll say this, like, A, great job managing it through probably one of the most complex periods in student loan history. <laughs> you know, we, I've lived it too. It is, it is not easy. And especially with graduate debt, not easy. So kudos there. And honestly, <laughs> the truth is though, I want every borrower to know that they have options. Like I mm-hmm. think what this what this debt did to me in the early days was really was debilitating. It made me kind of rethink and, and maybe shy away from risks I would have taken otherwise right. earlier in my career. And I think the really important thing for everyone to know is you don't have to make those trade-offs. Like you, Every borrower has an option. You just mm-hmm. need to make it. And I think that getting clarity is what creates those opportunities and being able to say, Oh, I've got this under control. Now I can go handle this other part of my life. You know, I think it just takes up a lot of mind share. And oh, that's yeah. what's been hard. It's what's hard to communicate to folks in generations where they didn't have this level of student debt. I Agreed. think that's 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 changing now. But and I think that's why forgiveness is sort of this this approach of let's just forgive it all and it'll be fine. You know, it's it the core problem is the system's really complex. We, and we need better tooling. Like that's the, and a lower, you know, alternatives education is a big piece of it. So as much of that 85K tuition you can get in scholarships, <laughs> it's going to be the move. And, you know, Mila, my three-year-old, I, you know, we're setting up for five to nine and the, the kind of guidance I'm getting is, oh yeah, it'll be a million dollars minimum to send your kid to school when she's 18, like 15 years from now. I'm like, that just, just seems like insanity. <laughs> I have three kids and even if they only do the, you know, if we do the 70 instead of the 85, you pay out of pocket, that is a million dollars for three kids, right? So 70, uh, yeah, exactly. yes, 70 times four times three, we've run the numbers many times. Um, so yeah. So well, thank you. I think this is really valuable. And I especially love that you have highlighted Two bits that I hope folks take away from this is that one, that it is complicated because I feel like it's really important to keep explaining that because I think otherwise, you know, this stigma of folks not understanding what it is they're signing up for or how to figure out repayment, you know, I think that stigma gets bigger because people, again, look at it as though it's a very simple transaction when, as you've mentioned, it's not always. And two, I hope the thing that people leave most with today is that, you know, it is manageable. There are tools available. You know, it's easy to get overwhelmed again. I've been there. I, I get it. But I'm hopeful that as people are more aware of their options and that there's better tools to allow them to understand how to navigate, that that'll make it easier. Yeah, absolutely. One other thing I'm excited about, I have like a quick tax thing I'm pretty excited about in student loans. Okay. If I could share. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Tax anytime. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Well, they did um, introduce a benefit that I was really hoping would have a, you know, would be tax deductible, and it, it actually happened in December last year. CAA 2021, which was one of the COVID relief packages, allowed for student loan uh, payments by employers to student loans, qualifying student loans under tuition assistance programs would be um, up to fifty two fifty a year could be tax deductible. So it's similar to any sort of tuition assistance 
payments to student loans in repayment, which didn't that wasn't a, a part of the tax code before, is now qualifying. So what that means is that employers can get really um, very, very much involved uh, and have a monetary benefit for it. I think before everything was grossed up, and now you have a situation where employers get the tax benefit, the borrower is better off, assuming they're not on an income-driven plan, and they want to prepay their loans. So I think I'm very excited about student loan contribution plans. I think they're going to be the norm in any benefit stack, and I, we want to really help be the rails in that stack. So I think there's just so much opportunity there because borrowers save and they're not the ones footing the bill. I mean, it's a big deal. Yeah. Thank you for pointing that out. I know um, that this is a conversation that people have been having increasingly when we're, especially uh, in this market, when people are looking at what can you do for me? You know, I know that college repayment in many forms is on that list. So yeah, just kind of as an aside, when we watched, it's funny to, to hear the idea of this being normalized, the idea that companies might be assisting you with the cost of your education, because that is not normal. And um, I will never forget my uh, good friend and I were going and we were watching, I can't remember the name of the movie right now. It's Tom Cruise. Um, I want to say The Rainmaker. It was one of the early Grisham movies. And um, in the opening scene, they tell him that they're going to pay off his law school debt. And I remember sitting in the theater and thinking, don't do it. Don't do it, Tom. Like, <laughs> they're sucking you in. There's got to be a, there's got to be a, a, you know, a payoff later. But yeah, that was when it wasn't normal for anybody to suggest that they were going to help you. Not, I mean, I shouldn't say, I know some firms did provide tuition and repayment assistance, but it was not considered normal in all industries. So I was think that, the that firm? The, yeah, oh, the firm, thank oh, you. Yes, it was the firm. No, you're, you're hundred percent right. I would love to see that be normal, like in all industries, like how can we help you? I think that's, you know, just again, as you mentioned, the, the peace of mind element to understanding that there's that you can fix this, that you can get out of this, that this is not something that, you know, you're committing to for the rest of your life. I think it's just, it's a huge perk. Absolutely. And I'm excited to see the future of that. I, I do. It's, it's supposed to last until 2025, but we, we could see that being uh, more of a, a permanent benefit. I mean, it's, it's got a lot of economic value. So agreed. we're pretty keeping our eye on that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I will too. I think that's great. Well, before you go, we have a couple of quick round questions that I would like to ask you that we ask our guests. So my first question for you is, if you could be any character on any TV show, which show would you choose? So that would be Captain Picard from Star Trek Next Generation, for sure. He has a management tips Twitter, which is just quotes from the show. Uh My wife and I love this show. We've we've rewatched it like three times. And there are so many great life lessons in that show, like just magnificent. And the way Picard runs his team is just like incredible. So I often look at his, <laughs> he is like a management tips, Twitter. <laughs> I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to Google now. Yeah. It's really good. Uh, so that would, that would be my pick. Okay. And I know you're not tax focused all of the time, but what is your favorite tax code section or reg? You don't have to do by number, but just what it is. Honestly, I think it's the one I just mentioned the the tax benefit, you know, under the one, two, seven plans, educational assistance programs. I mean, that is just a really meaningful outcome for just the industry at large. So definitely, I would say right now, that's my favorite. Awesome. And then lastly, tax Twitter would want to know pancakes or waffles? Pancakes all the way for me. That's a tough one, though. It's a tough one. It's a controversial topic. So, <laughs> so you know. well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really do appreciate it. 
if our listeners wanted to find you either on the web or on social media and you wanted to be found, where would you send them? Yeah, I think Twitter's a great place to go. My um, handle is Bo Matson on there. We also pay it off as on Twitter and LinkedIn. So you can also follow us for company updates. And on Twitter, we're pay it off app. Awesome. And I'll be sure to put that in the show notes for folks to click on. Thank you again for being here. This was terrific. Awesome. Thank you, Kelly. It's a great conversation. Appreciate it. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening, because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be. The number of words in the tax code is estimated to be 1 million, about the same length as the entire Harry Potter series. Add in IRS regs, rev rulings, and case law, and it can be a lot. We all need a little help to sort it out. Each week on the Tax Girl Podcast, I talk to the best in the business. And these aren't crazy technical dives. They're interesting and easy to digest looks at topics that matter to you. It's all that you need to stay ahead on the most important tax issues. You can subscribe to the podcast for free on taxgirl.com because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't be.